0: recording. Okay. Oh, I should also should start. we do the thing where we always do like Hi, welcome to the STEM cast. You'll you'll okay wait wait, what do we normally say? I, I go You
1: say welcome to the STEM cast, I say science and, and you
0: say your name, I say my name. Yeah, but I also say and we sometimes give advice.
1: Yeah, and you say that after I say science engineering technology whatever. Yeah.
0: And then you say Jessica. Yeah, and I'll go, that's Elizabeth.
1: You know, I'm going to put this in the episode where we go through who's going to say what. Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. So welcome to the STEMcast. Talking about science, engineering, technology, and mathematics. And we sometimes give horrible advice to students. And that's Jessica. And that's Elizabeth. So welcome. Elizabeth, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Jessica? I'm good. So I guess if people are tuning in for the first time, they should know that we are in different countries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, we're on Skype right now, in case anyone cares. I have a question to you as a native speaker. Okay.
1: When you say, how are you, what would you do if someone actually start ranting about? Like, you know, my car broke down and I was late for work. And then, like, starts actually telling how they are or like I'm feeling a bit depressed how are you
0: <laughs> yeah so it, because you guys don't do that in Sweden no yeah or in the rest of Europe it's totally a shallow question in North America yeah, <laughs> yeah. we don't actually mean how are you it's just it's really yeah. just like when you say hey to someone it's the exact yeah. same thing
1: okay is it the same for what's up you don't really say like oh you know I'm recording this podcast If it was like
0: you, I would actually want to know how you're going, you know, (laughs) like, I think you could tell, I would be like, how's your week going? How's the interview going? How's this? Uh, Yeah. 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 But if it was just someone that texted me and I was like, oh, I haven't heard from this person. And then I would be like, I'm fine. How are you? I don't Mm. know. So it's about feeling the mood. Yeah. So do you want to explain what we're doing today? It's Nobel Prize
1: season. I think the Nobel Prize is the 9th of December. Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: I have no idea. They, will
1: give, they have the <laughs> ceremony then. But before that, every September, they have something called the IG Nobel Prize, Ig Nobel Prize. I don't know how they pronounce it. But it's the parody Nobel Prize that celebrates trivial slash unusual research.
0: Yeah, Ig Nobel Prize. So today, we decided we would read our favorite... Uh, trivial
1: research this organization that does this so they started in 1991 and their goal is to honor achievements that makes people laugh and then make them okay do they do the winners actually get any money i don't know but it's organized by a scientific humor magazine and they have a ceremony at harvard every year and then they have lectures at mit so that's like a big honor if you would be nominated to something that is like oh it's you know it's humor it's like not serious but for this the nominees often show up and hold their
0: lectures. Okay. And even if you're nominated for something that's like, oh, your research is trivial, yeah. you would still want to, to share your research. Yeah. It's always good, I guess, to have publicity for your research. I
1: think that's the problem. It's so hard for researchers to get money. So all kind of publicity is like very appreciated. Mm-hmm. There's one guy, Andre Gem, who both have won the IG Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize. IG. IG Nobel Prize. <laughs>
0: Ig Nobel Prize That's really impressive though. So yeah.
1: wait do you know what the project was? Yes in 2000 he won the Ig Nobel Prize for making a frog levitate in a magnetic field
0: <laughs> right
1: <laughs> And in 2010 he won the Nobel Prize for his remarkable achievements while working with development of graphene.
0: Okay. So I guess maybe those things relate somehow.
1: (laughs) I guess he's a kind of smart person because I don't know anything about magnetic field and I'm sure I could not develop graphene.
0: (laughs) I mean, both of those things are super interesting. I would love for the frog levitation to have won the actual Nobel Prize. (laughs) Levitating a frog in a magnetic field, that's
1: not trivial. I wouldn't know how to do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I guess they're just like... And how are you going to apply this to real life? So what they also do is, traditionally,
1: during the ceremony, people threw paper planes on the on the stage. Okay. There's a person that, like, every year, his job is to wipe off these planes with a broom, so he's like the broom master. But Okay, wait, but why paper planes onto the stage?
0: It's just like... I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but this guy, the broom master, Roy Glauber, he's also a Nobel Prize Latherate, so
0: laureate like a real nobel prize laureate
1: if i remember it correctly he's one year he couldn't attend to this broom wiping thing because he was at the real nobel prize
0: wow imagine having to choose between the two <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah if you're if you're the one narrating the ceremony i would be delighted to join it sounds very fun yeah uh, send us an send invite. The invite to podcast Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be fun
1: Yeah, and last info is that every year when they end the ceremony, they say the like classical phrase that if you did not win a prize, and especially if you did win a prize, better luck next year. (laughs) That's mean. (laughs) It sounds like such a British humor, you know. But you said it's in the States, no? Yeah, the ceremony is in Harvard, but still, it's such a British like thing to say, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know anything about British humor, so. <laughs>
1: so that was my short Ig Nobel Prize review.
0: Very good. I want to hear your paper, what paper you chose to yeah. present. So we chose our favorite papers, and I'm sitting with it
1: here right now. The paper I chose, it won the Physics Prize in 2016. And it's called, well, <sighs> I don't know how I'm going to present this without making it sound slightly, slightly racist. But it really isn't, and I'm sorry if anybody is interpreting it that way, but it's an unexpected advantage of whiteness in horses. The most horsefly-proof horse has a depolarizing white coat. Okay. (laughs) And the thing is, it just feels wrong saying an unexpected advantage of whiteness.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a stupid title.
1: Yeah, in nature, being white as an animal, that's usually bad because you're sensitive to solar, so you can get cancer more easily, and you're also easy to detect from, um, like, predatorals. But then again, people like white horses because they look cool and they are rare. And, you know, kings and such were like, I want the rare horse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a status symbol. So we're breeding a lot of white horses. And what they figured out in this study is that flies are attracted to horizontally polarised light. Okay. Making them less prone to go to the white horses. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's
0: a step (laughs) missing in between there. (laughs) So You, you laughed. And then you fought. (laughs) Ah, it's it's doing its job. No, no, no. So flies are less prone to go to horizontally polarizing light. And that's why they don't go to the horses. But are you saying that the white coat causes only horizontally?
1: Yeah, they made a big study on this. But first, they also they also explain in the abstract clearly why this research is important, which actually I think is valid because the flies are annoying and that can make cattle and horses lose body weight and also like decrease the milk production for cows. They actually found some sort of like it sounds very funny like horses and flies and paralyzed lights and stuff, but it actually they see some value value and applications for this.
0: But what are they saying that the coat from only white horses polarizes light only horizontally
1: they cite some other paper about that like how the light is polarized from different uh, paths uh, different parts of the body according to the angle of incident light but i didn't go too deep into that but how they measure this um, horse light proofness is that they do do an observation study on horses on a sunny day where they count the number of uh, flies okay They also do a study where they have different kind of surfaces that are light or dark or shiny or non-shiny that polarize differently and they count the number of flies. They make observation study on different kind of salad oils in different colors, counting the number of flies. Uh, Wait, salad oils? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. But are they making the horse into salad?
1: (laughs) No, they just want to see if they're attracted to the light, if it's liquid. Oh, Okay. And they also put out a plastic model horse in different colors and counterflies.
0: (laughs) I feel like... This is not the best way to conduct science, but I have no idea (laughs) because I'm not a biologist or like...
1: I don't, I'm not really good with these lights and waves. That's not my kind of engineering, but they have a lot of like alpha and delta and gamma. So I guess it's actual science.
0: I mean, I took a class with a lot of alphas and deltas and also light propagation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, you took light
0: propagation. (laughs) So yeah, there are some alphas in there.
1: So they also see that the light angle change whether the light is incident on the horse, like, back or neck or something. So they also can see which areas of the horse are more prone to reflect this
0: light. Mm -hmm. And then what was their purpose <laughs> or is the point that there was no purpose cattle are being stressed by flies so if,
1: if you can understand how the fly works we can reduce the amount of flies on the cattle and the cattle can be
0: more efficient in producing milk and meat Ah, uh, yeah sorry you said that already mm-hmm, sorry yeah mm-hmm. so who, who funded this uh, i guess it
1: says in the paper Do we want to do commercial for them? No. The work was supported by the grant blah, blah, blah from the Hungarian Science Foundation and the grant blah, blah, blah from the European Commission. And then they got a lot of sponsorship on equipment, but was the equipment horses?
0: So was your thing, did it win anything or was it just one that random that you picked? It's won the physics uh, prize. From what 2006. 2006.
1: Yeah, but what they found, like their hard number, they condensed this uh, observational study to is that the fly are more prone to be on the brown horse than the white horse by 3.7 times. Oh. That's a lot. (laughs) And they also made a lot of statistical analysis. It's a significant value, and it's significantly valid.
0: Yeah, I I said a lot, but also I was like, actually, I don't know if that's a statistically significant amount. And So thank you for... (laughs) No, they do a lot of ANOVA significant
1: studies and such. Okay, cool. Yeah. They also say explicitly that the result cannot be extrapolated to deers and elks, because uh, we don't know if they're bothered by flies, and they live in the forest.
0: Until they go out with a bunch of deers and count the amount of flies on them. (laughs) Yeah. So if you read this paper, you'll be like,
1: oh, that's what I'm going to do with my elk.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you have a white horse and you're trying to sell it for a price and people are like, that's too expensive for a horse, you could be like, here's the data (laughs) supporting my, my claim yeah (laughs) horse is more
1: expensive i made some notes for this short review and i've written something and put four explanation marks after it but i can't i can't see what i've written so i guess it's not important
0: yeah because if it was important you would have just written clearly yeah and not put like so many explanation points
1: I'm very sad that I didn't go deeper in this uh, how the light actually works because you're such an engineer. You were mostly
0: interested in the in the tech. Well, no, I'm like, no, oh, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked hearing about the horses.
1: Yeah. No, but they have some they have some Greek symbols in here, so it's science.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's like one requirement probably for for science, right? To have Greek symbols. Yeah, It's okay. I I read a paper this week on uh, light propagation, so I got my fix. You got your fix. Nice.
1: Okay, so what was your paper of choice for this uh, special? (laughs) Okay, so
0: some disclaimers. Firstly, I didn't pick a past... Ig Nobel Prize nomination. But uh, maybe you want them to. I just picked this paper because I was like, this is dope. If you're in the committee, maybe you can consider this. Yeah. So, yeah. So And you uh, can
1: email us and give us tickets. <laughs>
0: yeah. So it's not a past nominee. And as I was reading it, I realized it's not science either. It's like a thought uh or like <laughs> Uh, social science? Where was it published? Which is science. I don't want to say it's not social science. Um, it's published in a Canadian journal called Cuisine. Cuisine? Yeah. Okay,
1: so it's okay. Social science might be science, but it's not our kind of science.
0: Yeah, so also, I don't even know if it's social science because I don't know anything about social science, but basically, <laughs> there were no scientific studies, it's just someone talking. Okay, let's hear what I have to say. So, paper I picked is called Poutine Dynamics. (laughs) If whoever is listening doesn't know, poutine is a dish from the Quebec part of Canada, from the province of Quebec, and it has traditionally three ingredients. Fries, gravy, and cheese curds slash squeaky cheese. So this paper, depending on your relationship with poutine, is either going to make you really disgusted with (laughs) what I just described poutine is, or it's going to make you salivate like crazy and want to go get a poutine. What do you feel? Oh, I was reading it and I was like, this sounds so good. But I know that some of the poutine examples I'll give you, maybe you're going to be like, I'm never going to Quebec. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, I have a lot of underlines here and I'm just just going to try to see I don't know what I wrote. Okay, so starting off. Basically, the author of this paper's thesis was to or like he wanted to figure out why Putin was served at the Canadian state dinner which is organized by the White House. So Putin was on the Canadian state dinner menu in 2016. Like the White House in the U.S.? Yeah. Or the White... So, he wanted to figure out how the heck (laughs) did this Quebec dish get on the menu. So, his thesis is that it has to do with the dynamics of poutine, both stigma-like mouth stigma (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, no, no, no. no. Sorry, that's not the right word. Both, like, the dynamics in your mouth and the social dynamics of poutine might have something to do with it, was his uh, thesis. If you don't know anything about poutine, basically, poutine was a way to roast Quebecers. Like, in Quebec, originally poutine was associated with like being really fat and uh, it's super unhealthy and it was related to it was a stigmatization used against Quebec society it was like a way to shame the Quebecois I
1: thought everybody liked it in Canada
0: okay so we're getting there so basically a bit of history about Canada Mm. and Quebec is that like Quebec was a like okay so if anyone doesn't know There were the First Nations and then the French came and they colonized Canada and then the British came and they colonized Canada after that. So there's like this really terrible relationship when the British came with the French. Basically, they were super racist against the French in Canada in the early 2000s. It was used as a stigma against the Quebec society being like, oh, see, they're fat, like they eat this disgusting shit, like blah, blah, blah. And then in 2000, along, so in 2016, there was the state dinner. And in 2000, it seemed like the first time when poutine started to emerge as like something really tasty. Because some, mm-hmm. some restaurant in Montreal started to serve shavings of smoked duck and cheese curds finished with red wine gravy and served with delicate Wafer fries so that was like a super fancy version of poutine and then that started like the poutine apocalypse Basically, which was now anywhere you go in Montreal you can get like poutine for breakfast you get it late night meal? There's poutineries um, but the first time that people really just started to take it like seriously, I guess was when this this chef made shavings of smoked duck poutine
1: <laughs> but why did they eat it in the White House?
0: Yeah, so that's... Sorry, that's... I, I'm getting to that. So basically, this is explaining his thesis why he mm. thinks it got into the White House. I mean, for me, Putin was always, like, the drunk food. Like, you ba- basically just get it when you're drunk or... Anytime, you can get it when you're drunk, you can get it for breakfast at like brunch places, you can get it for dinner, you don't make it at home, you always go out to eat it. Okay, sorry, that was a little sidetrack. So, his thesis, why is poutine at the state dinner, why is it all of a sudden seen across the world as like the Canadian dish? So the first reason, he says, is the dynamics of poutine he says here, dynamic aspects of f- poutine are found in every bite. So it's suggested that the most highly palatable foods are likely to have high levels of dynamic contrast. So that means like moment to moment sensory contrast from different properties of the foods in the mouth. For example, it could like dynamic contrasts in terms of texture, Temperature, viscosity, and irritation. So that's why people like high level dyna- dynamic contrast foods like ice cream or pizza. So in each bite, you have crispiness of the fries, it's like sound, texture, squeakiness of room temperature cheese. And then both the crispy fries and the room temperature squeaky cheese are melted down with thick, hot gravy. And so this dynamic contrast theory brings to light why traits of a superior poutine, like usually when you're like, oh, this poutine is so good, is because it has long-lasting crispiness of the fries and the fresh cheese curds. Yeah, anyway, basically... I was going to
1: ask about that. Like, how does the fries stay crispy?
0: Well, yeah. Are they
1: soggy in one end or crispy in one end?
0: Basically, it just has to be served fresh. Like, So if you go somewhere and you get soggy fries, you're like, this is disgusting. What is this shit? I don't care how drunk I am. Bring me a proper poutine.
1: Do you think the author likes poutine?
0: Oh, yeah, he's (laughs) Quebecois. So the author says, to me, these sensory uh, dynamics that arise during the tasting experience explain why my friends and I are on a constant quest for novel poutineries and why poutine eaters are constantly commenting, evaluating, comparing, and debating about the poutines they're sharing. So he says that the dynamic aspects of poutine are not only basically in the taste in your mouth, but also in like the dynamic social setting. So basically you go out with your friends and like in the middle of the night, you're Either you're drunk and like people are like, oh, like that was yeah. the best poutine ever, and you're constantly looking for different poutine experiences. Yeah. So that also adds to the dynamics of poutine. Uh-huh. Then he goes on to say that like poutine is a new, might be a new dish classification. Like I said, originally poutine was used to mock the Quebec, to Quebecois until one M- Montreal in a restaurant started to serve foie gras poutine. <laughs> So, this actually ended up sparking a lot of different type of poutines. For example, you can get a breakfast poutine served with roasted potatoes, cheese curds, frankfurters, which is a sausage, eggs, and hollandaise sauce. That sounds... (laughs) I was going to say, this is either going to make people throw up or... Like fall in love. It's making me fall in love. You can get pierogi poutine where you substitute pierogies for the fries because the the pierogies can also be fried, you know, and crispy. You can get curry poutine, which is substituting the gravy with curry sauce. You can get iced poutine, which is you replace the fries with chocolate wafers, the cheese curds with marshmallow marshmallows and caramel popcorn, and the gravy with caramel syrup, and you serve it all on <laughs> oh, top of so vanilla ice cream. That sounds so good. Yeah. So just like sandwiches, dumplings, soups, flatbreads are, or what sushi has arguably, arguably become, poutine is yet another label to classify how food is prepared, assembled, and constructed and consumed. <laughs> so so to food. Yeah, so just like the California roll, it's not originally sushi, but because of the way it's prepared, yeah. it's classified as sushi now. Mm. So then the working definition now of poutine is minimum three elements. So crispy element, which is originally fries, dairy element, originally cheese curds, and liaising element, which is originally Brown gravy. What the fuck? Yeah, basically, when served, each element has to have different forms of textures and temperatures with the proper ratios that all of them can be found in each bite throughout the course of the meal. You don't want no bite of just fries with gravy. You need a cheese curd in your mouth at the same time. Is it really so when you eat it? Is it really what that you need a cheese curd with every bite? Yeah, like. Yeah, So the aim is to sustain the highest level of dynamic contrast possible per bite over the course of the whole poutine tasting experience. Mm. So we've just gone through the dynamics of of the poutine tasting experience, basically how it tastes in your mouth and the social aspect of the tasting experience. So now we're going to go into sort of maybe a bit of history of the poutine and how that History adds to the dynamics of poutine.
1: I have uh, two questions before I forget them. First, what is the Canadian non-French dish?
0: Um, uh, good question. Uh, so what people have said it's poutine, but it's not.
1: When people think about Sweden, they always go for meatballs. When they think about uh, Switzerland, they think about pointy. But when you think about Canada, but not poutine, what would you think about?
0: Well, exactly. Now poutine is associated with all of canada but wait yeah. i'm gonna go into that right now my other question this like
1: social dynamics of poutine I, you we both live in switzerland so what i like a lot about the raclette and fondue is that you actually have something to work with while you eat you know you're just stuffing your face with cheese you actually have to like dip the bread in the cheese and like yeah you have it's some dynamics about the whole situation so, you mean like going for a drunk food poutine? Is that kind of dynamic? It, it's like an ass.
0: Well, and also when you order a poutine, you generally order a giant one and then you share with your friends. So, you're mm-hmm. all like trying nice. to fish for the fries and for the cheese curds. Nice, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so social mobidi- mobility of foods is what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> so, in a similar fashion for kimchi for example okay poutine has been following the same trend as other foods that went from being food items with a connotation of shame be it to shame of the culture or personal identity to being highly sought out by foodies and by the masses Mm. so for example kimchi kimchi was originally seen as a rotten condiment in korea uh, associated to poverty or garlic People used to call Italians in the U.S. garlic eaters, whereas now kimchi and Italian food are both very sought-out foods in America. Sushi was ridiculed when it first came out. Now it's a very high-end food. Lobster in Alberta, or sorry, not in Alberta, in the east coast of Canada, was actually used as a fertilizer for agriculture. And Mm. and so it was associated with poor people poor people with the poor. I don't know. So in a similar fashion, poutine has been used by many as a stigma and a mocking stereotype for Quebecois society, particularly by Anglo-Canadians. So like Mm. I said, Anglo-Canadians were very racist against the Quebecois. So the stigma also replicated by many Quebecois who felt embarrassed and disidentified with the dish. So now even old people in Quebec will disidentify with poutine because it's in back in the day, it was associated with like a really terrible stigma against Quebecois. So, for example, there was, in 1995, Ottawa led a campaign against Quebec's independence because Quebec wanted to be independent of the rest of Canada. So, mm-hmm. in 1995, uh, Ottawa, which holds the Parliament of Canada, led a campaign against Québécois' independence, and they posted caricatures tarnishing Quebec's culture and undermining their legitimacy by comparing Quebec to Putin's grossness, which yeah. is mean. But then, recently, in 2015, Quebec actually held their very own poutine festival called the Ottawa Poutine Festival. So <laughs> nice. that's like, yeah, that's 20 years later, and they're, now they have their own poutine fest. <sighs> Quebecois celebration of poutine is a new phenomenon. So, now we're getting to Canadi- 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 Can- Canadization of poutine. Putin has finally become accepted right that's where we are in history are you still listening or am i boring you for me canadians are the
1: most friendly open-minded people ever and it's just very interesting to hear that you had some like social dynamics in that sense with country was so torn
0: and not too long ago well yeah and this using Putin is like a really good example of how like i could also use hockey as an example and even like the montreal canadians which is the hockey team Of Montreal, which is a city in Quebec, didn't allow any uh, francophones onto their hockey team. They were all anglophone hockey players because they saw Quebecois as the lesser race, pretty much. That's crazy. Yeah. So I could also use... Uh, what's it called? I could also use hockey as an example, but right now we're using poutine. So, uh, Quebecois celebration of poutine is a new phenomenon. And now, poutine is being recognized as a Canadian dish. So, for example, Jamie Oliver in 2014 said poutine is the unofficial dish of Canada. In fact, they could make it look good on a flag. The Maple Leafs days might be numbered. In a 2015 <sighs> article by the BBC, they say, Why is Canadian English unique? They said poutine, Nanaimo bars, and butter tarts, three of Canada's greatest culinary gifts to the world, if the world would just accept them. Nanaimo bars are gross, by the way. You could find a new potato chip flavor offered by a company marketed worldwide that have bacon potato seasoned chips that say they're inspired by Canada. Ottawa Poutine Fest, which was in two thousand fifteen, said, "We are the world of Poutine." F- Sorry, yeah, we are the world of Poutine Festival, celebrating the comfort food of Canadians. But basically, Quebec was recognized as a distinct nation by the government of Canada in two thousand and six. So it would follow that Quebec and Canada's culinary identities should be distinct between one another. But, as I said, Quebec, uh, poutine was originally made in Canada, now it's accepted by the Quebecois, but now it's, like, being absorbed by the entire country. Even though the exact poutine is still disputed, yes, it emerged somewhere in the late 1950s in Quebec, as I said, older generations, the very subject of poutine consumption is often avoided and the dish itself is deprecated and often seen as an embarrassing culinary invention that evokes an old complex of Quebec people's inferiority. But today, Quebec's youth embrace it with pride. In conclusion, Sorry. <laughs> is poutine it too- is great dynamics in the mouth and
1: great dynamics in the in your group of friends and great dynamics for the country.
0: Well, yeah. So Quebec fears having their culture absorbed by Canada. So the fear of cultural absorption by a majority that has long attempted to assimilate the minority. So Canada, like the rest of Canada, has always tried to suppress Quebec culture, and now they're trying to absorb their culture into them. So basically, in conclusion... Dynamics of the tasting experience, which is either in the mouth or the social setting, and dynamics of how like this this big history of poutine is what has contributed to poutine being in the White House, because it's like change fields of (laughs) studies. I know that wasn't like very. This article doesn't really have a conclusion, but I tried to give it a like. It it talked a lot and gave a lot of information, and then
1: paraphrasing a conclusion.
0: Yeah, um, (laughs) but but there was a lot of interesting information. I felt like it didn't really support their claim, like that. Oh, maybe the dynamics is what made it at the White House, made it to the White House. But in reading the entire article, there was a lot of history there that I that I got to revisit, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed. Is this the kind of history you learned in school? So we did learn a lot about Quebec history or not Quebec history but like how Canada came to be but I think mm. it's just because I went to a francophone school so I learned yeah. a lot about that whereas I think in most Canadian curriculums they don't even teach this stuff but it's also the same with the first nations like we learn about a bit about the first nations but I feel like there's so much more sorry
1: What's
0: the first nations it's like the aboriginals that are from Canada oh, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So I found, uh, while you were talking, I did a quick Google search. And uh, the Globe and Mail conducted a throughout Facebook study from collections of comments, users, blah, 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 to decide a um, Canadian national dish, excluding maple syrup. Uh, so which one do you think is a top?
0: Oh, okay. Uh, oh, this is di- difficult.
1: Like you have, me- you have mentioned it 200 times the past 15 minutes. <laughs> Poutine? Poutine?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> with Wait, fifty-one percent.
0: So poutine is the top of the dish. Yeah. What do you think is number 2 Mm-hmm. Potatoes and gravy.
1: No, it's Montreal-style bagels.
0: Oh, that's so good. But see, that's that's ta- that's like the Jewish bagels from oh. the Jewish people that moved to Montreal.
1: Yeah. Is is it the one with the wood in them?
0: Oh, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I hope there's no wood in them.
1: Yeah, it says here, Montreal-style bagels, a sweet, firm, wood-fired... Wood-fired.
0: Yeah, 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 they're, they're like, in an oven, like a big oven yeah. with a wooden fire.
1: The list goes on till 7, so you, get, you say some food items and we'll see if they're on the list. It's not only... It can be food items as well. It's not only dishes.
0: So maple syrup.
1: No, that one is excluded.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, uh, pea meal bacon. No. Rest... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they call it Canadian bacon? No. Ha- ham. No. <laughs> Mashed potatoes and gravy. No. Sushi.
1: California roll.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, I give up.
1: So it's salmon jerky. The next one I think is from where your origin is from. It's pierogi.
0: Pierogi, yeah. Yeah. Ketchup chips. <laughs> okay, yeah, That that's that's like actually Canadian.
1: Nova Scotia and Donair.
0: Okay.
1: And then California rule.
0: Okay, yeah, but you see the pierogi thing is from the Ukrainians because there's a large population of Ukrainians in Canada. But basically, my conclusion is that Canada has no culture because we are a melange of many cultures.
1: Yeah. To every restaurant I go with you, even if it's Chinese or Japanese or anything, you're always like, this is better in Montreal. Yeah. (laughs) we better in Montreal. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's true.
1: So apparently Jessica and I were just too excited to go on with life. So we didn't record an outro. But yeah, I just want to say that I hope you didn't find the research to be too unnecessary that we presented. And leave a review, leave a comment, send us a message, send us a question at podcast at stemminin.com. And we might call you during our next episode. Or if you are the one arranging this Ig Nobel Prize party, just invite us. It would be delighted to throw some paper planes on the stage. Have a nice week, everybody. Bye!